Hi again, this is Shivaraman from Johns Hopkins University. Now, we've spent the last couple of sessions talking a little bit about GI bleeding and how to approach the scans, how to protocol, some of the rationales for performing these scans. Why don't we continue our survey of actually interpreting the studies and move on to goal number three or step number three in our interpretation of these CTs, and that's looking for other potential causes of GI bleeding that might not necessarily be associated with active extravasation. Now, as you can imagine, there are a large number of different causes of GI bleeding that you might encounter on a CT scan. Now, there are too many to mention, and certainly we don't have the time to go through every one of the 20 or 30 different diagnoses that you might encounter, but I'm going to talk about a few causes that I think I've seen relatively frequently in my own career and things that you should look out for, particularly in certain patient groups. We'll start by talking about the two most common causes of lower GI bleeding that I see in my own practice, and that's diverticular disease and infection. We'll then talk about a couple of different causes that are very common in the ER setting, typically patients who are septic, hypotensive, very ill when they come into the ER, and that's bowel ischemia and aortoenteric fistula. And then finally, we'll talk about a few causes that are usually seen in specific patient age groups. Inflammatory bowel disease and Meckel's diverticulum in young patients, and then steric colitis, which we see most often in older patients in the nursing room setting. So why don't we start with what I consider to be the most common cause that I see in my own practice, and that's diverticular disease. As all of you know, diverticulosis increases considerably as patients get older, and it is, in fact, the most common cause of hematochesia in the elderly age group. Now, diverticular bleeds are not something insubstantial. You know, we all think that this is nothing because every other patient we see has diverticulosis. But the truth is, diverticular bleeds are arterial, they can be massive, and they can be severe. And I've seen patients die from this. Now, you have a pretty good chance as a result of actually seeing active extravasation. But even if you don't see an active bleed, if I have a patient who has a negative CT scan but a whole lot of diverticulosis, I'm going to suggest to the clinician that that might be the potential cause for the patient's underlying lower GI bleed. So here's an example in a patient where I don't see active extrap, but I can use a sentinel clot sign to my advantage. There is clotted blood within that left colon within a diverticulum. It's about 65 Hounsville units, so I can be pretty certain that this patient has a diverticular bleed. Here's something even better. This patient was actively bleeding, their crit was dropping pretty precipitously, and you can see that there's an active extravasation in the left colon that's getting bigger between the arterial and the venous phase scans. And here's yet another example. Again, notice how the bleed is getting bigger between the arterial and the venous phase. Now, remember what I said. You don't necessarily have to see the active bleed for this to be a useful scan. If I see lots of ticks, but the patient has a negative CT scan otherwise, this is certainly something you want to bring to the attention of the ER physician. Now, I'd say the second most common cause of lower GI bleeding that I see in my practice are infections, and that's regardless of whether you're talking about the small bowel or the large bowel. Bowel infections are a very common cause of diarrheal illness in the United States, and they can, of course, be viral, bacterial, protozoal, virtually any infectious organism that you can think of. And in fact, infections are the most common cause of bowel wall thickening in day-to-day -day practice. Now, there are certain organisms that are more likely to cause lower GI bleeding, but in point of fact, any infection, when severe enough, can cause lower GI bleeding by causing that erosion of the bowel mucosa. Now, large bowel infections are typically more common, and there are obviously a large number of potential pathogens, but I'd say by far the most common entity to cause lower GI bleeding in daily practice is going to be C. difficile, or Clostridium difficile. Now, this typically arises in the setting of prior antibiotics or chemotherapy, and even though the most vast majority of cases that we see tend to be relatively mild, the patients do well, they respond very well to treatment, 
these do have a chance of going on to develop fulminant colitis, toxic megacolon, high morbidity and mortality, and of course, a not uncommon risk of lower GI bleeding. Now, these tend to have a relatively consistent appearance on CT. Pancolitis, extensive fat stranding, lots of free fluid and inflammatory change, although in rare instances you may see isolated involvement of either the right colon or the transverse colon. Now, here's an example where unfortunately we gave positive oral contrast, so we kind of ruined our chances of seeing active extravasation, but honestly, it doesn't matter. I can tell you that this patient had recent antibiotics, they've got horrible bowel wall thickening, and this is almost certainly C. difficile colitis. Even if I don't see the active bleed, I can tell the ER physician that this patient almost certainly has colitis as the cause of their GI bleeding. Here's another example that's very similar. Notice that accordion-like massive small bowel wall, I mean that large bowel wall thickening. This is a patient who's on chemotherapy, this is almost definitely C. difficile colitis. And even though the positive contrast prevents me from finding active extravasation, it doesn't matter. This finding alone is enough to provide a pretty good explanation for why the patient's bleeding. Now, small bowel infections are less common, but again, a pretty good explanation for why the patient might be bleeding. In most cases, you're not going to be able to figure out a specific organism based on the CT findings, but in rare instances, you might be able to suggest one. Remember, Giardia tends to be in the proximal small bowel, whereas things like TB, Salmonella, Yersinia, Shigella, Campylobacter are more likely to involve the distal small bowel along with the cecum. I would argue when you see small bowel wall thickening, particularly in patients with immunocompromised or HIV, you have to include infections on your differential diagnosis, including things like MAI, CMV, and crypto. Here's an example of a patient who's immunocompromised. They have pretty bad lower GI bleeding, and you can see that they have horrible enteritis. The entire small bowel is thickened. I can't tell you what organism that is. It could be any one of maybe 10 different things, but again, it doesn't matter. You've done your job as a radiologist. You've told them that there is enteritis, and they can go on and figure out what the organism is. Now, those are probably the two most common things I see in practice, infections and diverticulosis. But why don't we talk now about a couple of entities that are much more common in patients who come into the ER with acute illness, they're hypotensive, they're in shock, they've got massive abdominal pain, their lactates are elevated, you're worried whether or not they're going to survive, and they can present with lower GI bleeding, and that's acute mesenteric ischemia and aortoenteric fistulas. Now, mesenteric ischemia very commonly presents with acute GI bleeding, maybe in about a quarter of all cases. So if you hear the term GI bleeding in the ER setting, you've got to at least think about this diagnosis. Now, it's much more common that they present with nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, and classically, it's abdominal pain out of proportion to clinical exam. Now, as all of you know, acute mesenteric ischemia has four primary etiologies, occlusion of an artery, occlusion of a vein, complicated small bowel obstructions, and of course, non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia. Now, arterial occlusions tend to be most often in patients who have an embolus, typically an embolus to the SMA that comes from the heart. Now, arterial occlusions have a very characteristic appearance on a CT scan, and one that, in my opinion, can be quite subtle and easy to miss. Now, we've all been taught in our training that bowel wall thickening equals ischemia, right? Unfortunately, that is a very, very simplistic way of looking at things, and if you think of it that way, you're going to miss lots of arterial occlusion mesenteric ischemia. In these cases, often the bowel wall is not thickened, you're not going to see much mesenteric stranding, edema, or hemorrhage. All you're going to see is mildly dilated bowel with subtle bowel wall hypoenhancement or non-enhancement. As you can imagine, this is really tough if you're not paying careful attention to the enhancement of the bowel wall, very easy diagnosis to miss. 
Now, venous occlusion mesenteric ischemia tends to occur in the setting of patients who have SMV thrombosis. So this can be postoperative, septic thrombophlebitis, patients with intrinsic hypercoagulability. And this is much more obvious on a CT scan. Typically, you see horrible bowel wall thickening, really bad mesenteric edema and stranding, hemorrhage, either within the bowel wall or within the mesentery, and you get really, really intense mucosal hyperemia. Not a difficult diagnosis. People don't tend to miss the fact that the bowel is abnormal, but they do miss the fact that the SMV is thrombosed. Now, non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia tends to occur in patients who are hypotensive, they're in shock, whether it's cardiogenic shock, overdiuresis, septic shock, and it can look either like an arterial or a venous occlusion. There's no consistent pattern. And the imaging diagnosis is pretty tough, provided that you don't have any clinical history to help you. Now, the final pattern is complicated small bowel obstructions. These tend to be closed-loop obstructions, strangulated hernias, and typically you get occlusion of both the arterial and the venous supply going to that loop of small bowel, and as you can imagine, you'll see features of both arterial and venous occlusion. So you may see thickened bowel that's hypoenhancing. You may see normal, calor normal bowel wall thickness with hypoenhancement, but lots of mesenteric edema and stranding. You know, honestly, you can have pretty much any imaging appearance you can think of that combines the features of both arterial and venous occlusion. The key to the diagnosis is figuring out that there's a complicated small bowel obstruction, typically a closed loop. And I don't want to make it sound like each of these four patterns is, is exclusive, right? Any of these patterns can overlap, and you don't want to be too dogmatic about one pattern versus the other in day-to-day -day practice. Here's a good example of an arterial occlusion. This patient was having horrible lower GI bleeding. Notice how the bowel wall may be a little bit thickened, but the key here is that none of the bowel is enhancing. It's all completely non-enhancing. I don't see any enhancing mucosa. This patient has complete horrible bowel ischemia. Here's an example, on the other hand, of a patient who has venous occlusion. There's an SMV thrombus. This patient is hypercoagulable, and this is a case you're not going to miss. Horrible bowel wall thickening, mesenteric edema, stranding, a little bit of hemorrhage. Not a difficult diagnosis. You just don't want to miss the fact that there's thrombus in the SMV. Now, the next diagnosis that's critical you not miss in the acute setting, patient who's life-threateningly ill, is an aortoenteric fistula. This has a mortality of pretty much 100%. And you could argue these patients tend to die even when treated in the vast majority of cases. Now, it is possible to have a primary aortoenteric fistula, but... To be honest, the vast majority of cases are secondary. Patients who have had a prior aortic graft or prior aortic surgery. The classic clinical triad here is abdominal pain, massive lower GI bleeding, and a pulsatile abdominal mass. And at the end of the day, CT is the best modality to make this diagnosis. You're looking for ectopic gas either within the lumen of the aorta or adjacent to the aorta, effacement of the fat plane between the aorta and the adjacent bowel, focal bowel wall thickening adjacent to the aorta, or periaortic fat stranding in duration and free fluid. Now, even though you'd like to see direct extravasation of contrast from the aorta to the bowel or vice versa, in point of fact, that never happens. I've never seen a case where that happens in day-to-day -day practice, and I've probably seen seven or eight of these cases over the course of the last few years. You've got to utilize these secondary findings to your advantage. Here's a great example. We had this case maybe about a year and a half ago huge AAA that's been treated. Notice that this patient has an aortobiliac stent graft, but there's gas within the aortic lumen. And if you look carefully, the gas is directly coming in from the duodenum into the aortic lumen. This is a classic aortoenteric fistula, and this patient actually survived, which, to be honest, isn't that common. Here's another couple of examples. Again, notice how the ectopic gas is really the key feature. In both cases, the patient has had prior surgery, and in both cases, you see gas either within or adjacent to the aortic graft 
which is totally abnormal. Ectopic gas, you have to worry about the possibility of the patient having a fistula. So why don't we stop there? And when we come back, we'll talk about a few other diagnoses you should be thinking about, particularly in very young or very old patients. And we'll talk a little bit about tumors potentially causing a patient.